The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're going to come back to the debt issue and infrastructure. This is a topic that we've talked about a lot over the years. Uh, we talked about it earlier this year quite a bit and put it on hold. There is a lot now going on. Uh, there are de- debt restructuring plans underway now in Angola, Zambia, Ethiopia, and Kenya. Kenya in particular, there's some news this week. The IMF reached a staff-level agreement with Kenya for a $2.4 billion loan that will go partially to support the country's response to the COVID-19-induced financial crisis. Now, this is a three-year deal that will also help Kenya begin to reduce its debt relative to GDP. We're going to talk a lot about that debt-to-GDP relationship today. Now, Kenya's debt stands at about 7.2 trillion shillings. They have a debt ceiling of 9 trillion shillings that, uh, that, that was recently passed. Now, that's about $67 billion of what they currently owe today. Overall, as again, going back to debt-to-GDP ratio, that's about 65%. Now, that's higher than the recommended 50% threshold, but certainly nowhere near as high as many other countries in Africa and definitely not as high as a lot of wealthy countries. In fact, in the U.S., it's over 100%. Apples to oranges in some respects, but nonetheless, those debt to GDP ratios are interesting to follow. Now, that's the total debt that the Treasury has on its balance sheet, both what it borrows domestically and also what it gets from foreign creditors. A lot of people mistakenly think that China is Kenya's largest foreign creditor, which is actually not true. Here's the breakdown. They borrow more from the World Bank than anybody else with 25% of the external debt. Chinese loans comprise 21% of the external debt. And private creditors have another 19%. So those are the three big ones. Of course, there's some smaller loan portfolios with the African Development Bank and other bilateral creditors. China is by far the country's largest bilateral creditor, that is from another country, and they make up about $6.4 billion of that total outstanding debt. Now, the vast majority of that money was used to build transportation infrastructure, with most of it going to the standard gauge railway project that is now in deep financial distress. And and, and Kobus, here's the crux of the problem, not just for Kenya, but for a lot of countries. So countries like Kenya just can't borrow that kind of money anymore to build unprofitable infrastructure like the standard gauge railway. And as we've been talking about, oh, say, over the past two or three months, the Chinese really aren't that eager to lend that kind of money anymore. I mean, the the, the lending has just cratered. Uh, Boston University, we've mentioned a number of times on this show, and their research indicates that Chinese overseas lending for infrastructure and other types of finance has collapsed from, say, around $75 billion in 2016 to just $4 billion in 2019. And that's being reflected, again, in a lot of what we're seeing in Kenya. But Kenya, like a lot of African countries, still has enormous infrastructure needs. So it's turning to what we know as this thing called public-private partnerships to help fill uh, the gaping infrastructure deficit. As a whole, Africa still has about 100 to $125 billion a year of infrastructure needs that go unmet. And uh, they hope that other ways of financing this besides the heavy debt loads might provide a solution. So with these PPPs, the idea here is that a country doesn't have to borrow money from, say, bondholders or governments to build roads, bridges, and airports. Instead, it grants concessions to private developers who then get a few decades to earn the money back and then hand it over to the government. This is called the BOT method, the build operate and transfer. Kobus, that sounds great, but as we've seen over the years, especially in places like Kenya, it's really not easy to do. 
Yeah, it's 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 really a challenge. Um, in in relation to in relation to the to the lending, um, we should keep in mind that that while that the the Boston University um, study was specifically focusing on Chinese uh, policy banks, so you know the the Chinese Exim Bank and China Development Bank particularly, and their lending has sharply declined. But but a lot of people are pointing out that that there are other kind of avenues of Chinese lending for infrastructure in Africa, and PPPs is. is is a really major one, a really uh, one that that has gotten a lot of, of kind of positive attention over the last while because it it, it makes it possible to access private sector funds um, to build infrastructure in Africa. The problem is, as you point out, is to 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 make that investment start paying back and start pay, you know kind of start kind of making money early on. So what that ends up being like ends up translating to on the ground in Africa is that a lot of these these new like you know in the case of roads, for example, they then end up being toll roads. Um, and, you know, frequently the, the toll, you know, charged would not particularly be, be particularly kind of high in as seen from the developed world. But in the developing world, it actually translates into quite a lot. So so you immediately, you immediately kind of uh, like in, in, in kind of like you know, this kind of new financing tool opens up new options, but it immediately also opens up a fight between the government and the local people. Well, there's one toll road in particular that is in Nairobi, which we're going to focus on today, that is a very important experiment in this PPP model with the Chinese, one that we haven't really seen too much of across Africa. So a lot of eyes are on the Nairobi Expressway. For those of you who are not familiar with what's going on in Nairobi, it's a massive construction project that's underway, a 27-kilometer project that will slice right through the Kenyan capital. It's valued at about a half a billion dollars, about $566 million in total. It's being built by the China Road and Bridge Corporation. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, it should be. They, of course, built the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya. They built a portion of the Port of Mombasa, and they built the Lakoni Floating Bridge also in in Mombasa recently. So a lot of work being done by CRBC. Now, here's a little bit on the deal. They're going to get a 27-year concession where they're expected to earn an estimated, Cobus, wait for this, $988 million in profit in profit over the 27 years. (laughs) That's a good business if it works out. Uh, And they're going to make that profit, as you said, Cobus, by charging toll fees that range from about $1, $1 to $2 to up to $14, depending on the size of the vehicle. So we wanted to get a perspective on the Nairobi Expressway and to kind of get a first-person view of what's going on. And uh, Ismail Anahashi is a freelance journalist based in Nairobi and also an Alicia Patterson Foundation fellow. He's a longtime journalist who's covered China, Africa. He's been writing for The Guardian, for the BBC, for you name it. He's been uh, all up and down the continent doing a number of stories. We've had him on the show uh, many, many times over the past 10 years, and it's just a thrill to have you back on the program. Welcome back, Ismail. Thank you so much for having me, Eric and Kobus. It's a delight to be back with you all. It's great. And you just published this week a story on the BBC News website entitled Letter from Africa, How the Nairobi Expressway is Changing Kenya's Capital. Before we get into the details and the politics of infrastructure and the finance and all of that, why don't you start by just painting us the picture that you did in your story of what it's like in Nairobi right now, where they're building this massive new expressway. Just give us a picture of what the situation is. Thank you, uh, Eric. Well, anyone who has visited Nairobi can appreciate how bad uh, traffic can get. It's one of the most uh, famously uh, traffic-clocked cities in Africa. But in recent months, the situation has become even worse because, as you mentioned, uh, because of the construction of this Nairobi Expressway, which has really injected a new level of chaos into the Kenyan capital. And the... Expressway is essentially what I describe in the piece for the BBC, this letter from Africa, is like a giant gash through the city. I mean, there's so much construction noise. There's lorries beeping up dust and beeping car horns all out to the confusion. I mean, it has such a profound impact on the skyline of the city. Traffic is, as I said, become awful 
And what is also really interesting about all of this is that the speed of the construction of the Nairobi Expressway has really surprised people in the city. It's going up so fast. Every time I drive through the city, I'm just surprised by how quickly the concrete pillars are going up. And actually, the um, you know Chinese company building it, that you mentioned already, um, say that they will actually complete the Nairobi Expressway, uh, all 27 kilometers of it, six months ahead of schedule. It was meant to be um, opened in December uh, 2022, but now it'll open six months ahead of that uh, date, just before Kenya's next presidential elections. So how how are people reacting to it? Like like just like kind of you know I, I can I can see that the the construction is would cause a lot of disruption but but are Kenyans generally kind of optimistic and happy about this this new expressway or or you know kind of is it playing into some into the social divisions locally that's a really good question, Kobus. I think the key question is will this new Nairobi expressway help solve the Kenyan capital's you know famously you know traffic uh, problem or Will it further elevate the inequality that already exists in the city? Uh, Nairobi is East Africa's main commercial hub, but it's also got this enormous social economic divide. And the reaction has been that those, uh, for example, environmentalists have campaigned actively against this expressway. Uh, You will all remember the uh, famous Nairobi fig tree which, after an outcry, President Uhuru Kenyatta saved. But actually, hundreds of trees have been felled along the construction um, of the Nairobi Expressway, and many environmentalists and campaigners have actually said that, you know, this will not only lead to the destruction of this unique uh, ecosystem in the city, which is also, by the way, famously very green city. Nairobi is on a very high elevation. It's a beautiful green city of walls. Now it's full of pollution and traffic jams and construction. And also there is um, concern by environmentalists of destruction to bird habitats. And actually many feel that this expressway is the wrong way to deal with the city's traffic problems and some have said that it's a kind of destruction to the legacy of the Kenyan Nobel Prize winner Wangari Mathai who famously stood up to major government-backed developments in Nairobi. I think also to add to that there is excitement and I think uh, people sort of see this stuff you know whether it's the um, bridges, whether it's the dams, whether it's the railways as the stuff of modernity and I think there is also an element of excitement and people hope that this will uh, alleviate the traffic problems in the city. I think another problem, which I'm sure we'll discuss more in, in detail, I already mentioned, is you know the economic and social divides that exist in the city, but also in Kenya. And the worry is that because there'll be a toll fee to use this expressway, which reportedly will be between two and three dollars, the question is: Will uh, ordinary Nairobians be able to use this, or will it only become the preserve of elites? who will zoom past above them above. It's a really difficult question, but again, people are going to have to pay for this infrastructure one way or another. And again, I don't want to take a side in all of this, but either you build infrastructure through debt financing, which in Kenya's case has clearly not worked out, as evident by the standard gauge railway and some other projects, and a lot of infrastructure projects simply aren't profitable in the traditional ROI sense. That is, they don't generate cash. They generate economic activity, which in aggregate helps the economy, but that specific infrastructure project sometimes doesn't generate a return. So if people are unhappy about tolls and they also are reluctant to take on more debt, what do you think is the solution that they're saying? Well, I think, as you mentioned, you know, following the public-private partnership model is a new way to sidestep the fact that, you know, uh, Chinese uh, are no longer, as you say, so willing to finance these big infrastructure projects. And in recent years, China, you know, China has backed a number of these big projects in Kenya, and there's been so much this sort of infrastructure splurge. Uh, you mentioned the SGR, and uh, which was meant to, by the way, go to Naivasha, which is about 76 kilometers northwest of Nairobi, and eventually was meant to go to the Ugandan capital, uh, Kampala, but that was uh, stopped um, or suspended after the Kenyans weren't able to finance it. And I think what's interesting about this model for the Nairobi Expressway is that it's a new way of doing things when it comes to China and its engagement, in this case, in Kenya. I think um, 
the answer to that is oh, we just don't know. I don't think at this stage. Um, the uh, you mentioned the projection of the profits, which are quite high, and it's, it's astounding. I mean, almost a billion dollars. It, it does feel yes. It feels excessive. But as some other people pointed out when on when I shared that figure on Twitter, other people pointed out, well, if you want to attract companies to invest in African infrastructure, you're going to have to provide a higher rate of return simply because the risk factor sometimes is higher in order to to make that investment. That is the perception that a lot of investors have. Right. And I think if you look at somewhere like, uh, you know, outside Africa in the UK, for example, you know, uh, these uh, uh, public-private partnerships were used in the context of, for example, the NHS in the United Kingdom. And there's been, uh, uh, you know, a mixed success there, for example. So this model and whether it will succeed or not is, remains to be seen. I think the issue, though, in Nairobi at the moment is that this city is East Africa's commercial hub. Uh, it has an enormous traffic problem. There's enormous inequality in the city that's already existing. The question is, will this expressway uh, add to that or will it help solve that? And I don't know the answer to that yet. But I think what people are saying on the ground and the feeling in the city is that people are concerned because people say, well, the aim of improving Marabi's road system uh, is a laudable cause. But they argue that it could actually also worsen not only the traffic problems, but the huge economic and social device that exist. And also, you know, we have this projection you mentioned, Cobus, almost a billion projected profits from this toll road. Um, but if, you know, the ordinary Nairobians who use the Matatus uh, or the Boda Boda, you know, which are the motorcycle taxis and the Matatus are the very colourful sort of minibuses, which is how ordinary Nairobians get to and from work. If they can't use that, then what will happen? Will they just be stuck, you know, in the streets below why the elites zoom above and that's the concern i think what has been the um the re the reaction to the tolls specifically in nairobi so far and 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 you know related to that like how like how, how like how institutionalized are road tolls in kenya at the moment like like so so to, to contrast with south africa south africa has has as a quite an extent ex extended um, road network and a lot of those are already tolled so people are people are relatively used to paying road tolls you know like if you if you make a cross country journey in south africa you pay a toll several times along that journey. Um, but like a few years ago, the government tried to, to bring in an automatic tolling system where essentially, you know, kind of like each person was supposed to have a kind of a tag on their car and then they'd be charged kind of automatically when they, they kind of pass, you know, over certain roads. Um, and that ended up being extremely controversial to the extent that, that you know, kind of it, it hasn't it hasn't 100 percent fully been implemented yet because of popular resistance. So kind of like how used to tolls are Kenyans as you know, in, in general, and what have been the reaction to these specific tolls? Well, I think um Tolls were introduced Kenya in the late ages, I believe, and some of them were scrapped in the 90s. I don't think they're as widespread as you mentioned, Kobus, in South Africa. And I think the public awareness of tolls uh, when it comes to driving and roads is not maybe as high um, as in South Africa. But I think there's been a change in recent um, years and months. Uh, and the Kenyan government seems to uh, be recognising that in terms of its infrastructure plans, that, that charging tolls uh, for people to use these new roads that they're planning to build or are constructing will be a way to help finance it. Um, I think perhaps, and this is anecdotal, um, the feeling amongst ordinary Kenyan motorists is that you know, uh, there's lack of understanding as to why they might need to pay um, a toll. And I think the real issue is also the uh, because public uh, you know, transport is so uh, diffuse and somewhat patchy in this country, and particularly in Nairobi, the capital. Most people use these private uh, mutatus and border borders, and those people, you know, they'll see it as a real hindrance to their business to, for example, you know, for the Arab Expressway, reportedly pay between 2 and $3. I think that could hurt them and that, you know, would probably be something that they were not welcome. And actually, there's been some disquiet already in social media and in the Kenya press about this. You said that the highway project is the latest in Kenya's China-backed infrastructure splurge in recent years. Uh, not just the standard gauge railway, which a lot of people focus on, but there's a massive port expansion going on in the port of Lamu as well that the Chinese are involved in. This is a very big project. 
given what's happened with the standard gauge railway and the controversies that have been happening over the past few years, the fact that the debt now is unsustainable, both China and Kenya are, are negotiating now uh, debt suspensions and whatnot. Do you get the sense that people are a little bit wary about these big Chinese engaged infrastructure projects and that the skepticism might get in the way of the success of the project? I think that is a, a concern that has certainly been expressed both uh, by politicians in the media and amongst the public in Kenya. Because, as you described, uh, Eric, because of the uh, situation with the SGR and other uh, Chinese-backed projects such as in Lamu and in Mombasa, and because the cost of the projects. So the SGR, as you say, people tend to focus on that, but the cost of the SGR is pretty eye-watering, uh, 3.2 billion. Um, and I think there is uh, concern about the wisdom of the Nairobi Expressway uh, when you consider the ways in which uh, these huge projects have uh, happened in the last few years in uh, Kenya. I think also in Kenya, there's another question about the uh, effectiveness of these big road railway infrastructures. You know, um, spending 3.2 billion on uh, a railway um, when Kenya could have spent that money in other ways uh, to, you know, expand its roads, to support its public transport infrastructure, and so on. People question the wisdom of these sort of big-ticket infrastructure projects and the extent to which they actually deliver real results. For the Nairobi Expressway, because, as you say, it's been financed and built in a very different way through this public-private partnership, it remains to be seen whether it will be a success or not. But one thing that's very obvious, being in the city of Nairobi as I am, and driving through the city most days, is that this project is going to get done because it's going up so quickly. Uh, I'm shocked from when I came back to Kenya end of last year, and now, you know, we're barely into 2021, and the expressway has just gone up so so quickly and it's really going to dramatically change um, the skyline. It's mostly elevated through the central part of the city and parts of the expressway, by the way, we haven't mentioned are, are going to be, you know, uh, six lane um, and it's going to have ton interchanges so it's really going to change the city. So I think you know, the jury's out on that. I, I think one thing you can't uh, hold against the project is the speed upon which it's it's been uh, constructed. Also, I have to say, um, is that um, actually they have hired and trained a lot of local uh, Nairobians and Kenyans to work on the project, and it's actually much more visible. I remember the SGR and, you know, seeing sort of the managers tend to be Chinese, whereas with this project, when you see, you know, it's anecdotal, Again, because I tend to drive by or walk past, but you just see it's much more visibly Kenyan project, uh, it seems to me. How are these these controversies impacting the Kenyatta government politically? Uh, you know, in, in, in the case of South Africa, the, the, the that toll controversy I mentioned ended up being, it really kind of, I think, sh like exposed the, the real kind of like lack of trust between the South African public and the South African government, you know, um, and, and a, a very like hardened cynicism about, particularly about corruption in South Africa. Africa. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering, like, you kind of, uh, like, is Kenyatta kind of feeling political heat around these issues? Well, I mean, Kenyatta's term ends and there's going to be an election next year. Um, I think in the past, last year, he warned about US-China rivalry and saying that puts Africa at risk. I think, um, you know, I'm enormously knowledgeable about this, but I, I, I think my anecdotal sort of uh, view on it is that, you um, ordinary Kenyans question these big infrastructure projects and the extent to which they actually deliver real change on the ground. And I think because, um, as Eric said at the very top of the program, actually people often think China is Kenya's biggest creditor. It's not. Uh, you mentioned, for example, when it comes to um, its um, external debts, uh, Kenya owes um, uh, or it's the debts to China are, are about 21%. Um, I think there is uh, disquiet about the influence of, of China. I don't know the extent to which it's, you know, resulting in political heat for Kenyatta. I think one thing is certainly true, though, uh, is that um, as with this Nairobi Expressway, the government has backed it. Of course, it's a government initiative through this, you know, private-public partnership. But also, the president has, I believe, been 
on the expressway with the, you know, sort of the photos and the press. So I think he backs these big projects. And I think also ahead of an election year, there is always inevitably <laughs> the desire for politicians to try and show that they've done things. So I think it's interesting. It's just anecdotal. I, but, you know, the fact that this project is going to be finished six months ahead of the election next year is interesting to me. I'm wondering what that, that, that six-month advance does for China's reputation, because China's reputation in Kenya has been quite battered over the past few years. There's been a number of scandals beyond just the SGR. I mean, and there's just been a, a string of these over the years. And the perception of the Chinese in Kenya among civil society has gone down quite a bit, especially in light of what happened last year in Guangzhou. And Kenyan media was very, very vocal in their displeasure about that. But here we have a situation where they're building something right on time, actually early, and that's not something that contractors anywhere in the world are really known to do. Does that help China's reputation and repair some of the damage that they are delivering? That you give the Chinese some money, you give them a project, and it will get done. Does that help or does people don't care about that? They disassociate what they see in the news with what they see on these construction projects. I think my feeling is it actually it does help China. And I think we haven't mentioned covid um, in this conversation. And I think that has changed quite a bit. Um, and I think also the fact that if you look to the situation in the United States and the, in, you know, uh, President Biden and, you know, whether there'll be any re-engagement in Africa, much more so than under Trump, remains to be seen. But certainly, I think for those of us that have been watching China-Africa relations for some years, um, I think China still is in the ascendancy. And I think what it does prove, not just what you've said, that China not only can do these big projects and deliver on time, but also the fact that China is willing to do these big projects. Yes, the Chinese are no longer so willing uh, to loan uh, billions to build these big projects, but there could be in this Nairobi Expressway a new kind of model, a new kind of way for China and African countries to engage on these big infrastructure projects. I think also another thing that's important to mention in all of this, and I see on social media, is that actually um, people often are very critical of the West, particularly in Kenya, because they see when Western newspapers and news organizations write about these issues, uh, though we report it accurately and dispassionately, still they think that somehow that, you know, um, there's an anti-China sentiment and that um, the, the, you know, uh, Western countries are jealous of, of, of China and what they're doing and what they're able to do. Um, so I think it's also important to remember the broader conversations that are going on. But certainly, and the final thing I'd say to this is that, you know, we have seen an uneasy relationship between China and Kenya over the last few years. But I still think fundamentally the strategic value of China to Kenya is eminently important. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. You know, kind of following up on that, um, how how was the the cancelling of the the Chinese um, loan for the, or the, the the refusal of the Chinese loan for the, the third phase of the Standard Gauge Railway. How, how was that received in Kenya uh, popularly? Um, and and how do people now think about about that? Is you know are, are they seeing it as a kind of a a kind of a lame duck project because because that phase isn't completed, or is there still hope that they that they will in some way um, complete it at some stage? Right, Kobus. Um, well, I think there was backlash, certainly, uh, after the Chinese, you know, said they would not finance the continuation of the SGR line from Mombasa, uh, which was meant to go all the way eventually to, to Uganda. But this part was from Nairobi to Naivasha. Um, I think there was embarrassment on the side of the Kenyans. I think also people questioned the value of the whole SGR project, which... Uh, hasn't ever seen the the volume that was envisioned uh, and the traffic that was envisioned. It does remain popular and people do take, and I've been on the SGI and it's rather comfortable and so on. But I think um, people question the wisdom of, of the 3.2 billion loan from China in 2014 to construct the uh, SGR. And the fact that the Chinese still did not uh, allow for that to continue, I think, show that they were not confident in um, the Kenyans. I think also the popular uh, reaction to that, uh, to the Kenyan government, was one of 
just embarrassment. I think I think there's a, a healthy dose of um, criticism and uh, you know uh, skepticism that Kenyans have towards their government because you have to remember, after all, Kenya is one of the most democratic uh, countries in this region. It's certainly the commercial hub for East Africa. It has a very healthy press. And you saw all kinds of articles written at the time in the newspapers here uh, calling out the government here for the way they handled the SGR. And now we've got this Nairobi Expressway. The question still remains, you know, the wisdom of engaging in these big, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars uh, infrastructure projects and whether they actually deliver what they're meant to. So just for those of you who are not familiar with the the phase three fiasco of the standard gauge railway. Uh, this was a couple years ago. I think it was 2018. I don't remember the exact date, but uh, Raila Odinga and Kenyatta both went to Beijing. Now, this is these are the two opposition. They're, they're brutal political enemies with one another, but they came together and they really got bad intelligence because they not went once but twice to Beijing with their hat in hand to try and ask the Chinese for more money to fund phase three of the SGR from Nevasha to the Ugandan border. From what I understand from insiders who are familiar with those talks, there were there were requests from the Kenyan side that the loans for that be done on concessional terms, and the Chinese did not want to do that. They wanted market rate loans, and that's where it all broke down. And so uh, Odinga and Kenyatta came back empty-handed, and it was really was an embarrassment for Kenyatta because it really didn't lead to this grand vision of an East African railway network that he kind of painted out. This is what we are seeing now in Tanzania, in, interestingly, that they are building out a five-stage SGR, not using Chinese money, using Chinese contractors, something very different. And as a result, they are taking a lot of the excitement away from what was a grand railway vision from Kenyatta. Uh, as we look now towards the end of the Kenyatta era, and he made a very big gamble, uh, Ismail, on the Chinese to fund these massive infrastructure projects. He took a page out of what we do here in Southeast Asia, which is build infrastructure to finance and drive economic growth. Do you think the legacy of Kenyatta will be one where he was a visionary by partnering with the Chinese against the will of the people in many respects to build this massive infrastructure outlay in either PPP format or in the loans that he took on? Or will he be remembered in history as the guy who sunk Kenya into debt that generations will have to repay? Well, that's a big question. And I think that has to be one for the historians, uh, because I think we're still in the middle of, 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 of events. I think certainly what is true uh, from my uh, reporting experience um, covering this China-Africa uh, beat, if you like, is that Kenya is certainly one of the most important countries in the relationship broadly between Africa and China. And I think we've seen the tensions, the successes, and all the contradictions and all those big questions of, you know, is 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 that about a win-win sort of development? Is it, you know, neocolonialism and so on and so forth? Those big questions, those small questions play out in Kenya. And I think we've also seen uh, popular reactions in Kenya from the public because, as I've mentioned, Kenya is, a, you know, one of the most democratic uh, countries in East Africa. It has a very healthy uh, free press. And um, it also has a very boisterous uh, civil society. So I think people have questioned the uh, wisdom of these kinds of projects. I think certainly uh, the, the SGR will be his, one of his biggest legacies, simply because it's by far the biggest infrastructure project that Kenya has uh, pursued in the, its post-colonial era. So I think that is for the history book, certainly. Uh, and the question remains, you know, whether it will still be used, whether it will still be viable in a decade's time. We just don't know at that stage. But certainly the SGR will be an important legacy for him, as will the Nairobi Expressway and the other Chinese-backed infrastructure projects in the country. Did you get the sense that there was some learning from the from some of the problems of the SGR um, in, in later projects? So, for example, you know, the SGR was, was very criticised for for the, the that the loan negotiations were very opaque and then you know when when people started investigating them they turned out to have probably have been padded somewhat by by officials and and by um, companies was there a, a sense that that some of the problems around the the SGR deal forced Kenya to make some of these negotiations more transparent i think certainly um, that would be the impression because i think 
you know, the SGR, uh, you know, raked up losses and uh, you, we've discussed it quite extensively throughout the programme of all the issues around that. Uh, whether that's had COBUS a, uh, a role in terms of how the Nairobi Expressway is operating and being constructed, sorry, it's been operated and constructed, I am not sure. But I think one thing that I have picked up anecdotally um, is that... Uh, there is much more awareness about what these kinds of projects, these Chinese-backed projects mean in this country. Um, people are just much more aware of it than they were five years ago. Um, and I think there is more literacy on this issue. And you mentioned the SGR and the loans were opaque and there was you know, a desire to uh, you know, get to the bottom of what that actually means and uh, what that actually means for ordinary Kenyans who will have to uh, pay back uh, you know, these loans. Um, and we've already seen, you know, it, it's barely been a few years, but the Kenya couldn't keep up. And we had all the issues that happened in January with the uh, the extension on the, on the repayments on, on, on the SGR loans. So I think it's a big question as to whether China, you know, excuse me, it's a big question as to whether Kenya is able to pay back these loans. And that's probably true for other countries in Africa too. Well, let's look at some other countries in Africa. You spent a lot of time in Ethiopia. You did another letter from Africa for the BBC on what it was like to take the Ethiopia to Djibouti SGR. And you didn't give it a lot of good reviews. Uh, so uh, what has been your assessment of the situation in Ethiopia where they are facing very similar debt pressures as Kenya is also making big investments in Chinese-funded infrastructure, Chinese-financed infrastructure. Uh, what's your assessment after riding the SGR there a year ago to where we are today and uh, what's going to happen there? Well, that was um, from 2019. I was on a year-long fellowship for the Alicia Patterson Foundation uh, looking into China and Africa. And I was very keen to take the SGR train uh, from Addis Ababa uh, to Diradawa. The train goes uh, from Addis Ababa to Djibouti uh, to the, its port on the Red Sea. Um, and in June 2019, I attempted to take the SGR in Ethiopia. And it was a sort of a comedy of... Uh, one thing going wrong after another, if you like, which I, I wrote about uh, for BBC News. Um, and the interesting thing about that, again, is the numbers that first sort of pop out. Um, you know, this is, what, 4.5 billion? Um, the, the price tag? Uh, huge. huge. Big money, big exactly. Money. And, you know, it, it, Ethiopia, you know, you know, is landlocked and has over 100 million plus people and you know this was in 2019 today in Ethiopia I haven't been back since but we're in a very different situation with the political and ethnic tensions and civil war effectively that is going on in the Tigray region but going back to the SGR in Ethiopia you know it's a 750 kilometer railway line uh, which began operations in 2018 and it was Africa's first electrified uh, cross-border railway and for Ethiopia it was a really big project because it's sort of it's sort of crown jewel if you like uh, in its development ambitions you know, on whose tracks you know it wants to be um, this middle income country by the mid 2020s so the SGR was particularly important and I think uh, this if the Ethiopia and China relationship was always uh, uh, much more connected somehow, it looked to me, than, say, the Kenya and um, the China. And I think the Ethiopians and the Chinese had much more sort of cultural, uh, uh, you know, meeting that was going on. I remember um, going to this uh, famous restaurant in Addis Ababa, having anjera, which is the traditional Ethiopian food. And I was sat next to a group of Chinese businessmen and we got talking and they were having beers and so on. And they requested for the Ethiopian singers, these, these beautiful Ethiopian singers, this woman who was on the stage had this beautiful voice and she started to sing in Mandarin. Uh, and it was just so interesting, and I have never really seen that kind of scene uh, in Kenya, but in Ethiopia you saw that, and you saw Chinese people everywhere, really, in a sense, um, way more than you see in other parts of, of Africa. So I think the relationship between Ethiopia and China was very important, and the SGR was a particularly important aspect of that relationship. But unfortunately, my experience was that the train was not working um, and had not been working for two weeks when, in June 2019, I tried to take the train. I could not. And I Actually, the 
train um, were halted at that time because of security concerns um, uh, in the Afar region, and there have been clashes um, uh, along the tracks. Um, and actually, um, there was a stoppage in 2018, I think it was, uh, because the trains were collided with camels, <laughs> leading to pastoralists demanding the government compensate them for the loss of their precious livestock. And, you know, the SGI in Ethiopia has not you know, really got the traffic that it was envisioned to have. And again, you know, we've got this big question, Kobus and Eric, you know, about the, the, the merits of such a project. Uh, because politicians, as I say, anywhere, not just in Ethiopia or Kenya, anywhere in the world, I think have this desire to always engage in these big infrastructure projects, railways, dams, and so on. But they never fundamentally ask the usefulness of these infrastructure projects and actually whether they deliver what they intended to do. And this SGR you know, railway in Ethiopia was you know, essentially built along the same lines or near to what was you know, an old uh, uh, railway that connected Djibouti to Ethiopia. And it's meant to help. Uh, the, the economic kind of uh, you know uh, prospects of Ethiopia and and and, and I'm not sure it has and it, it's somewhat been a failure I would argue uh, that might upset some in Ethiopia and I think it was quite interesting to get quite a uh, healthy reaction on social media to this because I think often these kinds of projects are also about national symbolism they're about pride. Um, and what is troubling to me is not just in Africa, but I think probably true across the world, but let's just, you know, stick with the Ethiopian Kenya example, is, you know, sometimes doing more cosmetic sort of short-term investing in public transport, local infrastructure, local roads, that sort of stuff, probably, you know, adds to economic growth than these enormous big infrastructure projects. Both of these railways, both in Kenya and in Ethiopia, uh, were planned as, uh, you know, was, was envisioned to, at some stage to, to fit into um, a, a wider East, East, like cross-border East African railway network. Um, and that kind of cross-border network is, is crucial to, um, to actually making the African Continental Free Trade Agreement work. Um, how, how optimistic are you that, that, that Africa will see a, some kind of like transnational kind of infrastructure boosting trade, um, you know, kind of in, in time to actually like have, have the, the uh, free trade area actually mean something? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I think, uh, you know, as I said, with the SGR in Kenya, it was envisioned to go all the way to the, Ken uh, to the Ugandan capital, excuse me, to Kampala, and uh, it, it's not. Um, but in recent reports in Kenya press, I think, uh, say that um, the project might be continued at least to the Ugandan border without China invo without China's involvement. Um, and you mentioned that this was, you know, part of a bigger vision of connecting this region in East Africa. But actually, I remember a few years ago, there were talks of connecting the Gulf of Guinea to Ethiopia. And, you know, these big infrastructure projects and roads in Kenya, uh, um, roads and trains and so on. And, you know, I think that that's certainly part of what development is about. You know, it's about... Uh, uh, easing uh, traffic flows in and out of countries, uh, easing movement of goods and people at border entry points. And, you know, Africa, you know, has an issue with that. I remember, you know, years back traveling between Senegal and Gambia. And, you know, the, the, the distance was quite short, but it took a terribly long time because of the condition of the roads. And I think this is an issue right across the continent. And these projects in this region, the SGI in, in Ethiopia um, and Kenya, I think uh, at this stage are unlikely to progress uh, beyond, you know, to kind of get to that vision of this interconnected East Africa region. But finally, I just add that actually that there is a road that has been built. Um, I don't know if it's been completed yet, but I think it's still being constructed between Kenya and Ethiopia. And that's you know, a corridor that's meant to boost trade between Kenya and Ethiopia. So I think countries are, you know, whether China's evolved or not, trying to, you know, uh, get over the hurdles that prevent trade and people and goods moving between borders in this region and beyond in the continent. I'd like you to take out your crystal ball for the <laughs> final part of our discussion and let's look into the future. Right. Uh, so a lot of things are happening at once right now. So this is the era of the African Continental Free Trade Area. 
So that is very important to be able to move goods across the continent duty-free. Lots of excitement about that. But as you pointed out, moving things is very difficult in Africa. Logistics is a very, very big challenge there, just getting from point A to point B. Infrastructure, harmonization of taxes, you name it. It's quite complicated. At the same time, uh, this week alone, there's a warning coming out of Fitch ratings that uh, Kenya will be downgraded uh, should it join the debt service suspension initiative. That was a concern that the Kenyan Treasury had back in April of last year when it was reluctant to join the DSSI. Everybody said, join the DSSI, get going. The finance minister said, I don't want to do that because I want to protect the credit rating. Lo and behold, they're going to, to join DSSI and they're getting dinged by the credit rating agencies. Ethiopia has been downgraded. South Africa is in a mess. It's been downgraded. So we're looking at a very difficult time right now. And I sound like the African pessimist that a lot of people accuse me of being, which I am not actually. But nonetheless, there are a lot of economic headwinds facing uh, African economies right now in the post-COVID recovery, should that come soon. And what we can see right now, based on the vaccine distribution around the world, Africa will be at the very end of the line. So while the wealthy countries are going to start recovering their economies much sooner as they get vaccinated, I think the numbers I saw today was 1.6 million people a day in the United States are getting vaccinations. That will not happen here where I live in Vietnam or in Kenya either. So in that crystal ball of yours, looking at all the different things from COVID to the debt issues, to the downgrades, to all of this, what does the world look like in your view and what you're picking up from people on the streets in Nairobi as to how they see the future in the short term? Well, you set me a big challenge there, Eric, and I think uh, I'm going to try my best, but just again, with a caveat, you know, this is anecdotal. Uh, and I think the, let's start with COVID. And I think the rollout of the vaccine and the fact that Africa, um, I believe most African countries are not slated to have vaccinated their populations until 2023 or even later. I think Kenya is one of the countries that might be able to get ahead of others just a bit. I know South Africa is probably the only country in the continent that actually has the infrastructure and is already beginning to vaccinate people. I think the economic impact of COVID has been disastrous for African countries, particularly somewhere like Kenya, which so heavily depend on tourism because of the travel restrictions. People have not been able to travel. There has been some growth in domestic travel in Kenya, but that hasn't made up for the loss um, in terms of the international uh, tourism trade, and also because Kenya depends so much on, on terms of tourist dollars. Um, I think that's been a real issue here. And also the fact that African countries in Kenya and others have not really been able to, you know, uh, muster the kind of financial packages and support that they needed in order to support their populations throughout this global pandemic that has so devastated people and their lives across the world. Uh, South Africa, again, I think is probably one of the few countries that has uh, announced a package um, uh, there. Um, so all of these things added together ma makes... The, this, the outlook for African economies fairly, uh, you know, choppy over the next few years. I think in Ethiopia, unfortunately, we've seen this devastating political conflict and uh, civil war in the Tigray region, which I think is on, on a level as somebody who partly grew up in Ethiopia, who spends who has spent a lot of time in Ethiopia. I think I found just terribly sad. Um, and what is also quite sad about the situation in Ethiopia is that Tigray was one of the um, sort of economic engines of uh, Ethiopia, particularly when it came to, you know, for example, uh, factories, garments, that kind of sort of business. And actually, you know, there has um, been stories and allegations that quite a bit of that infrastructure has been destroyed. And I think the focus um, in Ethiopia, even though there is an election slated, um, the first that, um, you know, Prime Minister Abe will face in June, I think the conflict in Tigray has really thrown off economic development. So again, in the context of Ethiopia, that's an issue. Um, and then you, you know, add all that to the fact that, you know, we have been discussing the, the role of these big Chinese backed infrastructure projects, uh, whether SGI here or in Ethiopia, and what that means, and the fact that there's an issue of uh, paying back these debts. Um, and I think... You know, I always want to be an optimist, and I think as, you know, as a person I am, but I think the headwinds are not looking very bright here. 
And I think it's going to be really challenging um, for African countries um, generally. Uh, we've seen the data on this, by the way, but also in my region in East Africa, I think it's going to be really hard for countries to bounce back from. But, you know, they also have a lot of strength, a young population uh, and so on. And actually, you know, broadly speaking, they have not been as impacted in terms of death numbers, at least, um, compared to countries in Europe. Um, but I also think the vaccine thing is going to be really, you know, final point I just add to that is that it's going to be a real problem because, you know, we're moving into a world probably where, you know, it's going to be those who have vaccines and those who don't. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing, for example, in the UK, you know, you know, the country I grew up in, um, you know, you're seeing what's happening there. Last year, the UK didn't have that many travel restrictions. Now, the fact that it's vaccinated, uh, you know, up to 15 million people uh, has have got at least, I think, one dose of, 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 of the vaccine, of the COVID vaccines. And they're now moving into a situation where they're introducing travel restrictions. And I just feel that this is what's going to happen, that rich countries are going to not want to bring new variants and so on. So I think, you know, there's going to be a sort of boxing in of these developing countries, and that's really unfair, and that's really unfortunate. The letter from Africa, how the Nairobi Expressway is changing Kenya's capital, written by freelance journalist Ismail Anashi, who is based in Nairobi, an old friend of the show. Ismail, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to connect with you? They can follow me on Twitter, so it's Ismail Inashe, that's I-S-M-A-I-L, Inashe, E-I-N-A-S-H-E. Also my website, which is just my first and second name, .com. It's a pleasure to join you both. I love listening to your podcast, and it's always a great pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you so much. Kobus, it is so refreshing to get Ismail's on-the-ground perspective about the expressway in Nairobi. This is a very big project, and it's a lot at stake and whether or not this succeeds. Because if this succeeds, it could pave the way for more PPP projects to come in from Chinese state-owned enterprises. And as you rightly pointed out, the Boston University data was only for the two policy banks. There is a lot of lending coming from Chinese state-owned enterprises, private banks, all of these different other entities out there. And if they see this case study of a very, very big, high-profile project like what happened, what's going on right now in Nairobi with this expressway work and be successful and deliver returns on that investment, then they may open the purse strings for more. If it goes bust and it doesn't work in the next five, six, seven years, then that could be problematic for the PPP model in many places of Africa. And though you also have to take into account that if this doesn't work in Nairobi, one of Africa's largest, most developed cities, it's going to be even more difficult to attract that kind of investment for lesser developed countries like, say, Malawi, for example, to do PPP models. But we clearly have to find a different way of financing infrastructure, not just in Africa, but throughout the global south, because piling on more debt uh, won't work. We know that right now. It simply is unsustainable to pile on debt. So the PPP model offers a lot of potential, but it's a lot riskier. Yeah, it's a lot riskier, and it's also a lot more complicated. Like the, the you know, I think everyone, not only not only the developing world and not only China, are, are kind of concerned about the debt impact of, of infrastructure building. And we've seen the G20 already, like, focusing on this issue from, from like, the from 2018 at least um where they were they were working on on essentially trying to to set up infrastructure as a different kind of a- asset class in order to make it more um attractive for for companies in in the developed world to invest in infrastructure in the developing world it's complicated it's very difficult to do um it's it and if one thinks that they're doing it for like making it work for for roads is difficult at least roads you can still you can still charge at all like it's much harder to do it for other kinds of really needed infrastructure like water purification plants um, for example so yeah it's, it's really complicated if if they can pull it off it will be a real game changer but it's 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 hard to do well the americans learned a very painful lesson in trying to build infrastructure in kenya so back in 2015 the united states and kenya agreed on a ppp project for bechtel the big engineering company to build the mombasa to nairobi expressway now this was going to be a three billion dollar project And in many ways, then former ambassador Kyle McCarter, he really held this up as, you see, we're going to rival the Chinese in terms of building infrastructure. We're not going to saddle Kenya with lots of debt, and we are going to make this happen. 
What they learned that in the PPP process, and I'd like to get your take on this, Cobus, was that you have a lot more stakeholders than you do in the concessional loan process. So in the concessional loan process, one of the criticisms of the Chinese is their close relationship with Africa's governing elites, in this case, Uru Kenyatta. And in one sense, there's an advantage to that because the number of people in the room is quite small. And so in terms of the, the levels of corruption or the numbers of people that have to be paid for whatever reason is much smaller. The project with the Americans came grinding to a halt simply because the costs were inflated up so much. My understanding, based on the press coverage, was in part due to corruption. And it makes sense in one sense because if you have an open process, a lot more people have their hands in the pie. So that is one of the other downsides of a PPP model is that it is much more subject to corruption, which remains endemic in a lot of African countries. I suppose. I mean, it's such a complicated thing because I think you know w w one of the one of the possible pluses of a PPP project is that because you because you're involving private sector um, institutions so um, you know so so closely uh, a, a, in, in some cases a different set of reporting um, requirements kick into action. Um, you know, so so the the case with bilateral lending frequently is it's such a closed room, like as we saw in Kenya itself. You know, around the SGR, it's like it's you know it's, it's it's so opaque that it's that it's in, in you know that it, that it could be easier to 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 be corrupt in that environment than in in the other one. But as you say, the more people involved, the more complicated it becomes, and the more opportunities for for kind of like co corruption down the pipeline happening. It's it you know it's it's a really massive problem, and it's it's a problem that that sits within Africa's general corruption problem, which is huge. You know, so so for example, I mean South Africa uh, this week in South Africa that like there's literally discussions about whether the previous um the previous president should be put in jail because he's been avoiding like you know this massive kind of hearing process um about his his own corruption um you know so so now like we we're in we're in a situation where where corruption is leading the or is creating the possibility of one president arresting the previous president um you know so so it's it, yeah that's it's it's a it's a massive it's an existential problem in Africa well so one point that Ismail brought up is whether or not the infrastructure was well-planned. And in many cases, the that's been the criticism of the standard gauge railways, that it's a railway to nowhere, out to Naivasha, and then it just stops in the middle of the Rift Valley, and that it's not useful. Well, a little bit of insight from out here in Asia, where infrastructure building is really a passion, is the fact that oftentimes they will build the infrastructure without much around it. And I saw this in China all the time where they would build a train you know train line or apartment buildings or massive roads and everybody would say this is ridiculous what are you doing building this in the middle of the no middle of nowhere over the weekend in here in Vietnam I was on a bike ride and there in the middle of nowhere was a giant highway and we just couldn't figure out where it was going and what it was explained to us was that the government identified this area as a, a, a place they want to do development. So they're building the road first, and then the businesses will come up around it once the road is there. So it's that chicken and the egg in terms of do you build the infrastructure first or do you build the, the city or whatever you need, and then the infrastructure on top, which is ultimately much more expensive. I tend to think that eventually the standard gauge railway in Kenya will find a use. It will become practical because businesses are going to wrap themselves around it. And the same way for this expressway as well. Once the infrastructure's there, if it's accessible and affordable, then people will use it. And it will get, it just the demands are so high. That has been the experience out here in Southeast Asia. That is the experience in China. I guess I'm assuming that it might be the experience also in some parts of Africa. Yeah, I think so. You know, in, in that sense, the the Naivasha Dry Port makes a lot more sense if you if you you know consider the the wider kind of plan for that that entire kind of East African integration, which 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 you know means kind of getting, for example, raw mineral ore from from the DRC to to the port. You know, like so 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 in in that wider scheme, one can see what they what they're kind of going for. Um, the the issue is just you know is is, is I think the one the the thing that's different is is that it's it's not it's maybe 
it's maybe easier for 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 countries in Asia to to have that plan and then kind of roll it out. You know, in in, in Africa, there's many many kind of factors that that kind of mitigate against the, that rollout. You know, and, and I think that there's where the complication lies. Well, we're also out here much deeper into the infrastructure development drive than in in many parts of Africa. This is a, a movement that has been underway for two, three decades. Also, people have been closely watching what's been happening in China, and they see the, the, the importance of infrastructure. And it's not that Africans don't see the importance of it. It's just that there's a whole system and culture that is now supporting this drive to build infrastructure. Lobby groups, environmental groups, policy groups, you name it. Policy think tanks that are, that are all up and running in countries like Vietnam or Singapore and other places like that where infrastructure, again, has been a passion for 20, 30 years and where we're just starting the process in some parts of Africa and hopefully it will continue. So, well, that'll do it for this edition of the podcast. As always, we really enjoy the conversations and we have these conversations every day in our email newsletter that we send out to our subscribers and we would love for you to join our growing readership and community of readers around the world, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You'll get a full access to our website, all the archives of every story that we've put out. You'll get also access to our China Africa Experts Network, the daily email newsletter, and also access to us and email us. We love interacting with our subscribers. We do sessions with our subscribers quite a bit and briefings and things like that. Uh, it's the subscription start at $7 a month for students and teachers. $15 a month for everybody else. If you have any questions, you can email me directly at eric at chinaafricaproject.com or cobus, C-O-B-U-S at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. Or... Follow the guys on Twitter, Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>